Well, as we get started this morning, I uh, recognize the fact that the, there are folks on any given week that are in and out, and uh, what we're going to talk about this morning is really important in the context of, of where we've been so far. So I want to make sure we're all on the same page and, and bring us up to speed. When we back, began a few weeks ago, we talked about how in the beginning God created male and female for a lifetime relationship of marriage, husband and wife, made from and for one another, equal in value, but unique in design. God created marriage before the fall, but as we talked about, He had the the fall in mind, because built within the design of marriage is God's most vivid portrayal of His redeeming love. Marriage was therefore created with the gospel in mind. I don't know about you, but that, that's an amazing truth to consider. And because that's true, then we can understand why God went to such great lengths to protect what He created with that covenant promise. That promise, like the new covenant promise that, that Jesus made to us as His church. That promise of future love. It establishes, when we make that promise, the needs of the relationship as more important than any one individual. This one flesh bond that that God created in marriage is what allows us to experience the fullness of intimacy of being fully known and truly loved. And that marriage relationship is set apart from all other relationships with, with highest priority. And this was all God's design. It was His plan from the beginning. And when we follow that design, it's not easy at times, not because the design's hard, but because we make it hard. But when we follow His instruction, it always works out. It's when we step outside of His design that people get hurt and things don't end well. As we learned last week, Satan is always trying to destroy What God has created. He is intentional about that process. And he does so by repeating the pattern that we looked at last week when he isolates and then he confuses and then he deceives and and, and convinces us to to step apart from God and and go our own way to, to do what's best for us. And in the end, our selfishness is, is like a cancer that destroys the relationships that God has created for us to enjoy. You see, sin changes everything. And we need God to restore the order that He created us for in order to experience the love that He has for us. Something to move us from that curse to the cure. From broken relationships to, to peace and well-being. You see, that's where Jesus enters the scene. This may be helpful. I'm going to walk through this with you to give you kind of a, a, a visual demonstration of what this looks like. In the beginning, we know that God in His creative order, having authority of all things, brought everything into existence. And when He did so, He created male and female. 
And in that institution of marriage, he gave the male, the husband, that role of headship to sacrificially love and protect his wife. And that wife was made from man to be that helpmate, to complete and to allow them to fulfill the calling that God has put on their life so that both of them together could have dominion over all that he created. That was his design. I want you to notice what happened last week in the garden. It was flipped. Because Satan took the form of a creature who then called out the woman to a place of headship that she was not created for while the man willingly sat in submission and said nothing. And together they believed in what this, the Satan had intended for them to do, to, to, to feast on those lies And together, they willfully chose to step away and pursue selfish gain instead of trusting in God. It was completely reversed. And as a result, the relationships God created us for were broken. The relationship that we have with God, where once there was peace and fellowship, it says now there's hostility and enmity. Where once there was union and and, and completeness in marriage, now that relationship is broken. And we see from from Genesis at the end of chapter 3 that that the man, instead of lovingly protect, will, will step into a role based on the sin that drives him to dominate. And in the same way, the woman, instead of humbly submitting, will seek to rule over and take that place of headship. And that relationship that we have with his creation is not what it's intended to be all those were disrupted by the presence of sin and we also know that that satan is our enemy and he's the prince of this world and as a result there is this ongoing spiritual battle for the souls of men and women boys and girls But I want you to know that when Jesus Christ came, he changed all that. We saw that verse that talked about through one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men. But turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I want us to look and see how the scripture describes what Jesus did to reverse the curse. Romans chapter 5, verse 17. Through one man's sin had entered the world, but listen to what it says in verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, speaking of Adam, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many were made righteous. He reversed the curse. He reversed puts things back in the order that God originally intended them to be. Those who were far off, 
as Paul writes to the Ephesians, have been brought near by the blood of the cross because Jesus has become our peace. His sacrifice removed the penalty of our sins so that by faith we may enter into the relationships that He created us for in the beginning. And here's the good news. Because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, planned in eternity past by our loving Father, now through faith that redemptive work of the Holy Spirit who now works within you can restore any relationship that has been broken by the power of sin. That's the good news. Any relationship at any time starting right where you are right now. That's good news. That's the power of the gospel. That's salvation in Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, as we come to you to examine this amazing truth of what has been restored through the person and work of Jesus Christ, may we stand amazed, just as we sang this morning. May we be in awe of what you have done to restore, to reverse the curse of our sin so that we, by your grace, might experience the relationships that we were created for. And may thanksgiving and praise fill our hearts. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you would, turn to the book of Ephesians. You can start in chapter 2. We're going to look at several Uh, verses in Ephesians, and I want to do that because there is probably no greater book in the New Testament to give us a description of that redemptive work of God up close. And so that's what we want to begin by looking at together. I mentioned to you already that Jesus restored the relationships that were broken by the power of sin, beginning with our relationship with God. That verse that I read to you was... Ephesians 2.13 that says that he, those who were far off, he brought near by the blood of the cross because he became our peace. And that peace begins with a relationship with God. Look at verse 16 in chapter 2. goes on to say, And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death enemy, reconciling them to God. Our relationship with God has been restored through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And when we put our faith and trust in Him, that peace that we share with Him now extends to the whole household of believers. Look at verse 19. It says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. You see, through faith, the seeds of reconciliation have been implanted inside the heart of every believer. And now they must be be fostered and nurtured so that they can grow and be strong. 
And, and although we are secure in God's love for, for all eternity, the cancer of sin is invasive in all of our life. And, and there are strongholds that, that we need God's Spirit to work in and through us to eradicate them. We need God's love to, to course through our veins to make all things new. That's essentially the idea. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. As Paul is praying, he says this in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with the power of His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Jesus Christ has moved us from the curse to the cure. And we are becoming all that He has created us to be as that transforming work of the Holy Spirit courses within us as we submit to Him and we are transformed into His image. The image of God that we were created in to begin with. As I thought about this idea this week, it reminded me of my time in the the cancer center. And one of the things that we uh, encountered as we treated patients, is that sometimes the cancer had become so invasive and, 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 and so prolific in the body that they, the cancer cells were producing, uh, reproducing themselves faster than we could kill them, essentially. And very often when it reached that point, the only treatment that was possible was what was called a bone marrow transplant. Now, the reason that a bone marrow transplant is successful is uh, has the potential of being successful is because all the cells in the body are produced in the bone marrow. And when that marrow is diseased, all the cells will be diseased. And so in the transplant, what takes place, it's a pretty risky procedure because they've got to eradicate all those diseased cells out of the bone marrow so that none of them exist and then transfuse new cells into the body in hopes that those cells take, take over and become the dominant cell that then produces healthy cells instead of diseased cells. But one of the reasons it's risky is because it's a transplant. You're introducing foreign cells, and if the body rejects those cells, the disease will take over. But if it recognizes them as good and healthy and allows them to take over, then the prognosis is pretty encouraging. But it's risky. and It's difficult. As I thought about that this week, it reminded me of the cancer of sin and how invasive it is in our life. And when it is the dominating disease in our life, there is no hope for survival because it's producing sin faster than you can do good works to cover it. You need something outside of yourself to change what's inside of you. You need a transplant of God's love into your life through faith in Jesus Christ so that by the power of His Spirit, He transforms what is diseased 
and forgives and replaces it with what is new and good and right and true. But here's the deal. You've got to have that hard submission to the work of the Spirit because sin has strongholds like cancer often does. And it stays hidden. And if you don't have that daily dosage of dependence upon Christ, sin has the ability to begin to reproduce itself again. And so we need to always be in a place where we are surrendering our heart to the Lord so that His work can be completed in us by the power of His Spirit. You see, the cure for sin is found in the cross of Christ. But our experience of this healing is progressive over time. It's like a transplant that, again, requires that daily dosage of dependence upon Christ in order, as Paul would say, for us to be strengthened by the power of His Spirit in our inner man, making old things new. This is important to our marriages because unless we are filled with the Spirit, unless this transformation takes place in our life, the love we offer is tainted with the disease of sin. Unless that transformation takes place, the love we offer is tainted with the disease of sin. We need to be grounded and growing in God's love in order to give pure, undiseased love to one another. This is important because, as Tim Keller says, the picture of marriage is not of two needy people, unsure of their own value and purpose, finding their significance and meaning in one another's arms. It just doesn't work that way. Because we do not possess that satisfying love in and of ourselves. In fact, listen to me here. No relationship ever succeeds when we depend on another person to provide for us what only God can provide. And you can only give to others out of the fullness of what you've received in Christ. That's the message of Ephesians, is to to look at what God has done as the motivation of what we then must do. And that's the heart behind what he says. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. It says, based on all that I've just told you, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Therefore, based on everything that you know that God has accomplished on your behalf, then let me extend this challenge to be careful in how you conduct yourself. Be careful in how you walk, Paul says. Do not be unwise, but be wise. And I don't know about you, but I hear that and and 
I think it should ask, we should ask ourselves the question, well, how do I do that? How do I be wise? Is that just a matter of, you know, kind of knowing the right thing, studying up and, and just being a smart person? Is that how we do it? No, the, the reality is we don't possess the wisdom on our own. We are dependent upon that from the Lord. We looked at that in our study of Colossians. If you'll go a few books over, Colossians chapter 1. Oh, I'm sorry. Later, not before. Colossians chapter 1. Listen to what it says. Verse 9. Again, Paul praying. Listen to his prayer. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask. Now listen to this. That you may be filled with the knowledge of His will. How? In all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Look at the results. So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You see, the love we need is the love we receive from God. The wisdom we need is the wisdom that we receive from God. All these attributes exist in our life because of the fruit of the Spirit at work within us. We do not possess them on our own. So Paul's point is to challenge us to rely on what we've been given and not what we can do apart from Him. Because when you are led by the Spirit, you always walk in the will of God. He knows no other way. Just think of the ministry and the life of Jesus. He walked perfectly in the will of God. Why? Because he was filled with the Spirit and without exception submitted to that leading in his life. Verse 18 makes it clear that it's all a matter of who's in control. It says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. You see, he makes a contrast here, doesn't he? And he makes it obvious so that we all get it. Because we know that when you're filled with wine or any form of alcohol, it has an unavoidable result. He calls it dissipation. It literally means a wild and undisciplined life. Drunkenness is that state of mind. Where you think you know what you're doing, but you are not in control. He contrasts that with being filled with the Spirit, which also has an unavoidable result. And once again, you're still not in control, but this time it's because you are willingly submitting and surrendering to the leadership of the Holy Spirit in your life. Allowing His love to be that was transplanted in you to take over. <laughs> that wisdom that you did not possess in your own to be given to you as a gift so you walk by that instead of what you possess apart from Him. But it all boils down to control. You see, the flesh brings destruction, but the Spirit brings life. The wild and undisciplined life leaves a trail of pain and broken relationships because by nature, we are relationship breakers. That's the power of sin. But if we're filled with the Spirit, that life breathes hope 
into every relationship we have. That statement of having songs and hymns and spiritual songs, that it seems kind of odd to me as I read, wondering how does that fit into the context. And this was my thought as I considered that passage. I thought, you know, how pleasant would it be on Sunday morning if Mark got up here and said, okay, everybody pull out your hymnals, pick out your favorite song that you would like to see and on, sing, and on the count of three, we're all going to sing our favorite song. That wouldn't be very pleasant, wouldn't it? wouldn't be worshipful at all. But what's worshipful is when we all have the same song. We're singing in unison the same words, and our audience is one. That's worship. And that's the life of the household of faith when we are being led commonly together by one Spirit living within us through faith in Jesus Christ. And it is to an audience of one. Look at verse 20. Always giving thanks for all the things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. See, the, long, the song of our life gives praise to God when our spirit is empowered to conduct ourselves by following the example of Christ. Our unity is based on our mutual submission to one another in the fear of Christ. That's an interesting statement. When I read fear of Christ, I thought, I don't think I've seen that very often in the New Testament. And sure enough, it's the only time that it's stated exactly like this, and there's only four other times in all the New Testament where you see Jesus as the subject of that statement. And it makes no sense if we interpret that as, as a dread or, or a danger, that, 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 that negative emotion of fear. That's not what's being intended here. Instead, what's being intended here is, is, is an emotion of reverence, of awe. That the more we understand of the love that's being displayed in Jesus Christ, the more we look at it with our jaw on the floor saying, Wow, that's amazing. That's what it means to have the fear, the the reverential awe of what we see in Jesus Christ. And having been filled with His Spirit, our hearts desire increasingly over time to live out that same demonstration of love. And that mutual submission in reverence to Christ is the basis upon which Paul will then go into the discussion about how we are to live with one another as husbands and wives, parents and children, employers and employees. Because if you don't get that, none of the rest happens. And we're going to look at that in detail in the coming weeks, but... This morning, I want us to consider three things that come out of what we've discussed already. The first one is this. Listen carefully. You cannot be filled with the Spirit if you're always full of yourself. You cannot be filled with the Spirit if you're always full of yourself because self-centeredness is the enemy of every relationship in fact i would go as far as to say and i feel confident in this statement that every single problem in the marriage relationship is ultimately a spiritual issue rooted in the issue of selfish pride because by nature we are 
relationship breakers. And when our personal needs in a marriage become more important than relationship, it just doesn't work. And we need to accept the fact that that pride is a problem that we share universally. (laughs) Nobody's exempt from this. So we have to, to deal with that in a way that it doesn't control our life. So the question is, how do you know when it's controlling your life, right? How do you know when, when pride is the dominating factor? Well, Sh- Terry shared with me a little illustration that uh, she heard from Priscilla Schreier. Makes the point great. In this cup, I have, it's filled with water, okay? It's nice and calm. The water stays in the cup. But when I shake this cup, what comes out? I'll clean that up later. Water, right? Why? Because water's what's in the cup. So the question for you is this. When life shakes you, what comes out? When life shakes you, what comes out? Is it anger or patience? Jealousy or kindness? Harsh words or... Or gentleness, selfishness, or self-control. What I have given you are the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. When you go through hard times and life shakes you, what comes out? Because whatever comes out is what fills you. You cannot be filled with the Spirit if you're always full of yourself. The second thing that I want you to consider is that happiness should not be our highest goal. I know that sounds odd, but we need to understand that God's ways are not our ways. And very often it doesn't work like we think it should in terms of the equations that we have in our mind. And that's why the Bible's filled with paradoxes, right? For example, when Jesus said, whoever wants to save his life must what? Lose it. And whoever loses his life will Find it. Save it. In other words, if you seek happiness more than you seek Christ, you will have neither. But if you seek Christ more than you seek happiness, you will have both. And here's how that works in the marriage. When your personal needs become more important than the needs of the relationship, than the needs of your spouse, then neither one of you will be happy. But when you seek to serve your spouse more than your own personal needs, then you will have a joy that you cannot find on your own. Look, here's the, the, the reality. There is nothing more miserable than trying to satisfy the insatiable appetite of the flesh. It's miserable. Trust me, been there still struggle with that reality. But instead, we need to learn to trust in the Lord and His design. And then happiness comes as a blessing from God when it's not our highest goal. Because here's the danger when we don't understand this principle and apply it to our marriages. What happens is we end up loving our spouse expecting that we get the same in return. It's a love with strings attached. (laughs) I'll do this if, 
right? But that's not the Christ-like love that we see demonstrated on the cross, is it? It did not come with attachments. Look at 1 John 4. You don't have to look there. I can read it to you. It's up on the screen. That's not right. I'm in 1 Peter. That's why. Like, that doesn't make sense. Let me read this one because I don't have the NIV and I like the way this reads. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, what that is saying here is that the love of God is not dependent upon our love for Him. (laughs) He loved us even while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. And when we demonstrate that kind of Christ-like love, we love our spouse out of the fullness of what we have in Him, and we don't expect the same in return as the motivation for our love. I know that sounds strange and hard to grasp, but it's the truth of Scripture. And I also want you to know that there are people in this room, I see your faces, I know your names, I know your story. And you're in relationships where you are giving and you are giving and you are giving and you're getting nothing in return. And in some cases, you're getting insults and injuries and harsh words. But I admire you because you made a covenant promise. And you're going to stand your ground. And you're going to give and give and give. And the only way you can do that is if you're not dependent on someone else to meet the needs that only God can supply. You are filled up with the fullness of God. And out of that fullness, it allows you to give. And when you run out of love for God, then you'll run out of love to give. But you're never going to run out of love for God. Right? I admire you for what you're doing to hang in there because of the promise that you've made. I think it's an answer to the prayer that we looked at in Ephesians earlier when it, Paul said, would you be, pray that you'd be strengthened with power through your spirit in the inner man, rooted and grounded in love, filled up to all the fullness of God, giving out of the work of the Spirit within you. I admire you. I stand with you. I believe in you. I'm grateful for you. This brings me to the final point that I'd like to make this morning. And I want you to listen very closely to this. You cannot say that you are walking with Christ and at the same time choose to be indifferent to your spouse. Okay? You cannot say that you are walking with Christ and at the same time choose to be indifferent to your spouse. Now, if you need a passage of Scripture to back that up, I'm glad to give it to you. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. It says this, You husbands likewise live with your wives in an understandable manner, as with a weaker vessel since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Here it is. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay, let me address that issue of weaker vessel that some interpret in a demeaning way, and that's not the way it was intended. Probably the best description I've had is what Mark has shared with me, and it's a beautiful image that I want to share with you. 
He says that weaker vessel is the picture of a very precious and beautiful piece of fine china. And you don't throw that up in the cabinet with all your everyday dishes where it can get chipped and hurt. And, and You just don't do that. What you do is you take a shelf and you clear it out. And you stick that beautiful piece of china right there on that shelf. And you protect it. And you put a light on it. And you tell everybody, look how beautiful this is. That's our role as husbands and how we care for our wives. And men and women, when we don't care for one another as God intended, we cannot, be cl- we cannot claim to be close to him if we are not close to them. God says very clearly, if you keep your spouse at arm's length, treating them with a cold indifference, God will not hear your prayers. If you will not be close to your spouse, you cannot be close to Christ. That, to me, is one of the distinguishing differences between two Christians who are married and a Christian marriage. Because a Christian marriage is marked by a mutual submission in reverence to the example they see in Christ. I know you've seen this image before, but it's a good one. Because it helps us visually see that as we grow closer in a common pursuit together of knowing the Lord, It is blessed by His grace to allow us to experience the fullness of the love He's created us for. But when two Christians are not growing closer together in their walk with the Lord, they will remain distant from one another and disconnected in their relationship. It's a sad reality that we often see, and unfortunately a lot of times in marriages like this within the Christian community, people refuse to divorce because that's just not the Christian thing to do, and yet they emotionally divorce themselves from their spouse long ago. So let me be clear. Two Christians who are unhappy and unreconciled but undivorced is in no way pleasing to God because it still disrupts the image of His love that our marriages are intended to display. Now, don't hear me say that you should go get a divorce. That's not what I'm saying. You heard me commend and encourage those who are standing in their marriages. What I am saying is this. If a husband and wife will sincerely seek the Lord together with a heart of repentance and submission to His Spirit at work with them, there is no pain, there is no problem, there is no hurt or difficulty that He cannot redeem. His redeeming love knows no boundaries. Now, as I say that, I I realize that there are those in our church family who've been divorced. And I think as you're listening to this marriage series, you of all people know the pain of broken relationships. And I want you to know this. Although God hates divorce, He does not hate divorcees. Although God hates divorce, He does not hate divorcees. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And He saves those who are crushed in spirit. He is sufficient to meet your every need. And I encourage you to continue to put your faith and trust in Him. And I know there are some in our church family who have 
been divorced and are now remarried. And what I want you to know is that everything that we have talked about as it relates to this covenant of marriage from beginning to end applies to you. And yes, in God's grace, he can allow us to experience all the fullness that he intended in the marriage relationship at any time, starting where you are right now. But we can only love based on our commitment to maintaining our first love and our relationship with Jesus Christ. So be filled with the Spirit. Allow that spirit to to invade your life and make old things new. Surrendering to that work so that what you exhibit in your relationship is out of the fullness of who you are in Christ. So that the love you give is the love you have received. The wisdom you have is the wisdom you have received. And it's all to the praise and glory in, in mutual submission to one another in reverence to the example of Christ. That's who we follow. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your tremendously awestruck example of self-sacrificing love. I pray that as we listen to and understand the words of Scripture that we are in awe, that there is this reverence as we see the example of love that you've demonstrated to us that we just fall on our knees, bowing and worship with unified voices to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And may that be our motivation of our heart and our love for others, that it would spread throughout the household of faith, just as you intended it to, and namely in our marriages, so that we give out of the fullness of what we have in you. Forgive us, Father, when we turn to ourselves and allow selfish pride to be the barrier the self-sacrificing love. May we repent, come to you humbly, and ask that you do within us what we cannot accomplish on our own so that we can give those very precious people in our lives the love that they deserve, our spouse, our kids, our friends. May it be out of the fullness of what we've been given from you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.